I cut my teeth in a, a Christian environment where people share their testimonies, their, their stories, usually their conversion stories, quite a bit. And, and though the genre can become quite predictable after a while, there is, I suppose, a place for it. However, on the other hand, the notion of testimony or testifying in the Gospel of John is a different notion. It's a weightier and a more sober phenomenon. The Greek word for witness or for testimony is the word martyr. It eventually came to mean not simply one who shares their testimony or who witnesses, but one who dies for the faith. To witness, to render testimony, is to place one's life on the line. And the two became bound together, testimony and suffering. And so testimony means giving a kind of oath-bound deposition in the court of the Most High God. It means to swear before heaven and earth to the veracity, the truthfulness of what one is claiming. And our text here in John 5 is about the testimony that shows forth or proves or authenticates who Jesus is. So verses 31 and 32 in John 5 are a sort of header to the whole text. If I testify about myself, Jesus says my testimony is not true. Testimony, according to the law, had to be established by two or more witnesses. Self-testimony is not valid. Right? You, can't, you don't get to authorize or notarize your own signature. Self-testimony cannot exonerate you. And Jesus is not formally on trial yet, but he is informally on trial. And that's why he brings this testimony language up. Right? He's already healed a man on the Sabbath. He's been accused of blasphemy. And he's being informally harassed. Now, he's already told us that he does nothing of his own accord. He does only what he sees his father doing. So these stupendous claims he's making, they do not depend on his own witness. His witness is the father's witness. And so he says here in this text, there is another, another who testifies in my favor. And I know, I know that his testimony about me is true. Right Throughout the scriptures, various people can And do testify to Jesus. But Jesus says this. He says the decisive testimony. The testimony that needs no other testimony. Is the father's testimony. If we had no testimony but the father's. We'd have all the testimony we need. Sometimes the father testifies directly of Jesus. Sometimes indirectly. And what we have in this text is three forms or three kinds of testimony. They're all ultimately from the Father. Corresponding to this, I want to make three points that are there in the back of your bulletin. John the Baptist, the works, and Scripture. I'm going to focus on the third point and try and go quickly through the first two points. So, first one is John the Baptist's testimony. John was a witness, he was a prophet. But notice what Jesus says here. He says he doesn't accept human testimony. 
I mean, Jesus doesn't need John the Baptist's witness. He doesn't need the testimony of John the Baptist to know who he is in his own mind. The reason he brings John up, he says, is for us. I mention it, he says, so that you might be saved. Then he tells tells his, his listeners, John was a lamp burning for a while, and you rejoiced. You chose for a time to delight in his light. John generated a lot of messianic buzz, excitement. And he was new and fresh, and for a time, Jesus says, you enjoyed his light. But they seem to have moved on. It's my, it's, it reminds me of the way folks were stirred to go back to church after 9-11 for like six weeks. Eventually, you fall back into old patterns. John was a new thing, and they were interested. But this is an indictment. Jesus says to them, you chose for a time to enjoy his light. But you had no real integrity of commitment. Anyway, Jesus wants to move on. He says in verse 36, I have testimony that's weightier than that of John. And that brings us to the second point, which is the works. And it's at this point that he moves from this sort of indirect testimony of the Father to directly to the Father's own testimony. The works that the Father has given me to do, the very works that I am doing, Jesus says, they are testimony from the Father. They show that the Father has sent me. We've already seen everything that Jesus does is simultaneously the work of the Father and the Son. So these works that Jesus speaks about here are not just the miracles. They're his whole ministry. His teaching as well as his signs. His life and works. Right? And in them, directly, not indirectly, in them, the Father testifies concerning Jesus. What is the testimony that the Father renders in public to Jesus? It's Jesus' whole incarnate life and death and resurrection. And this witness, like John's, is also being rejected. And so Jesus turns again to indict. These are very harsh words. Notice, you have never heard his voice or seen his form. This echoes back to what Jesus said earlier in this chapter. He sees and hears everything the Father does. Jesus is the voice and form of God. But the leaders haven't heard or seen anything. Nor does his word dwell in you, Jesus continues, because you don't believe the one he sent. This is a shocking charge. Since you don't believe in me, God's word does not dwell in you. These are scholars He's talking to the Jewish leadership. These people have their noses in the Bible all day long. And Jesus reasons that because they reject him, the word does not dwell in them. And that reference to the word brings me to the third point I want to make and focus on, which is the scriptures. So verse 39 verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that In them you have eternal life. So even Jesus acknowledges that these are not negligent people. I mean, their Bibles are well-worn. They study the scriptures diligently. 
They're not only devout churchgoers, but in our terms, they have private devotions. Right? They faithfully attend Bible studies. They study. They study. They exert themselves because, the text says, they believe that in the scriptures they have eternal life. Well, it's hard to fault them for that belief, is it not? I mean, there are texts which virtually say that. Actually, there's an avalanche of texts which virtually say that. We are studying Psalm 119 for Lent on Wednesday nights. And the text repeatedly binds up our life with the words of the Torah. Psalm 1 does the same thing. It ties your very destiny to meditating on the word of God day and night. I mean, what's wrong with saying that in the scriptures we have eternal life? But something has gone seriously wrong here. It has to do with their motive and the manner of their engagement with the Bible. And I want to come back to what I think it is. But the issue is of eternal consequence. Look at verse 45. Don't think I will accuse you before the Father. In other words, this is not just a little Bible study mistake. This is something that's going to lead to an accusation on the last day. I mean, Jesus has already told us that the Father has committed all judgment to him. He will sit as judge, but he will not need to be the accuser, the prosecuting attorney. That will be Moses on whom your hopes are set, he says. You've placed, placing your hopes in Moses means trusting the law. Trusting the Sinai covenant that came by the hands of Moses. Again, I think it would be virtually impossible to say anything more shocking to the Jewish leadership than that Moses would condemn them on the day of judgment. It's really hard to grasp this, right? I mean, it, tr- try and think of it this way. It's, it's like saying the thing in which you are the most proud, the place of your most fervent service to God, the thing that you love and delight in the most, that is the place of your disgrace. That is the source of your judgment. It's stunning. So I want to make a point here before we look more closely at what's gone wrong with their scripture engagement and study. This is the big picture thing. We see it here, but we see it everywhere in the Gospels where Jesus confronts his opponents. And I think it's easy to glide over it. So I'm going to put it in a somewhat provocative way to get our attention. Again, this is the big picture thing about Jesus and his opponents in the Gospels. It's this. Conservative, deeply religious, Bible-reading people in the Gospels are the worst people in the world. They are the absolute worst human beings on the planet. They're the worst people on the scene They're the people Jesus constantly struggles with, and they are the most complicit in his execution. And until American Christians grasp that, they are not going to read the Gospels properly in a self-reflective way. 
There is no stubbornness like religious stubbornness and no blindness like religious pious blindness. And as I've said before, there's virtually nobody in this room who, if they were a first century Jew, would not be of the party of the Pharisees. They were the good guys. They held fast to the ancient ways, to the tradition. They loved the Bible. They never missed synagogue. They resisted the liberalizing tendencies of the Sadducees. They they resisted compromising with Greco-Roman culture and the Roman authorities. They did things decently. They did them in order. They did them with the appropriate authorizations. They were law-abiding, and they were also monstrously evil. That's the problem Jesus runs into over and over and over and over in the Gospels. He has no difficulty with who we think the evil people are. They love him. He loves them. Right? And if we think, oh, that was them. We're not subject to the same sort of hypocrisy or lack of perspective in our piety. Well, I think we'd be deceiving ourselves if if we did that. The point is, given the nature of the human heart, it is precisely in practices like prayer and Bible reading and almsgiving that the proud, disordered, blind self-righteous person is produced. It's like a breeding ground for that kind of person. Jesus is going after this, by the way, throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. Be careful how you give alms. Watch how you pray. Don't do this to be seen in public. He knows that the kind of stuff that we do is, can become a factory to produce the wrong sort of human being. This is often missed, right? We think it's not doing the things that we do that produces monstrous human beings. Jesus knows that it's doing the kinds of things that we're given to do that can in fact produce monsters. It's right at their strength. You, notice this word, diligently study the scriptures. You love Moses and the law right at the place of holiness. That a deep, insidious, twisted, counterfeit holiness develops and people don't even know it's happening to them. Because the heart is an insidious thing and who can understand it, Jeremiah says. And so we can become defiled more than prostitutes and tax collectors. By some kind of proud sense of superiority. And this is the issue in the Gospels. It's also the issue in the church. In the church, Pharisees are never excommunicated. Why? Well, they don't commit adultery and rob any uh, convenience stores. They keep the law. I've never seen anyone excommunicated for being hardened and proud and self-righteous. But what they do do is they cause divisions. But it's never broken people. In fact, you know what? It's never nominal people. You know, the person that shows up for church 1.5 times a month. That person never splits churches. It's these people that split them. It's the committed. 
who get their priorities all out of order, who tear things apart. Because proportion is everything in the Christian life. And without understanding this phenomenon, I do not believe we'll understand what happened to the Jewish nation and to its leaders. Right? Otherwise, you read the Gospels like this. Boy, we have a one-time, historically, uniquely evil group of people in these Pharisees. They're almost like from another planet, cut from a different kind of human nature. These people are really monsters. They crucified Jesus. How dumb and how immoral are they? You have to probe deeper than that. And once you probe deeper than that, you can understand why it's these kinds of people with which the confrontation with Jesus turns into bloodlust. Right? There's no... There's no vicious, inflexible turf protection like religious, in, in, you know, inflexible turf protection. It's only when you think you have God on your side that you can then become a monster. Or at least it's easier then. So that's my general background point. I want to talk about what else went wrong here, though. Something went wrong more concretely in their devotion to Scripture. Their relation to Scripture is mentioned in the text in verses 39 and 40, and then again in 46 and 47. And in between there, there's this little short passage that goes to their motives. You see this in verse 41. 41. They seek glory or praise from human beings. Glory from one another and not the glory or praise that comes from the only God. So there's a, there's a kind of vanity in their religious piety that opens one up to flattery, right? And to seduction and to reputation building, right? Religiosity and religious institutions have this problem. They're not immune from them, right? They end up receiving people who come in their own names. Now here Jesus is alluding to the fact that the Jewish people had begun to and would continue to be open to a string of false messiahs. They killed this one, but they went after that guy and this guy and that guy. And so Jesus' point is, is that it is piety that can easily become about glory or praise or status. And seeking that kind of glory cuts us off from the glory of God. So, Part of what's happened here is they've gotten into the, the habit of accepting the wrong kinds of testimony. And it, over time, it turns out that they won't accept the authentic testimony that Jesus furnishes. Now, I want to look a little at the method. That's their motive. I want to talk a little bit about the method they took to Scripture. Verse 39, they study diligently because they think that in them they have eternal life. As I said, it's hard to, it's hard to blame them. The famous Rabbi Hillel said, the more study, the more life. If you gain the words of Torah, you gain life. But, Jesus continues, these are the very scriptures which testify about me, he says. And yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. So notice what's happened here. It's really astonishing to believe it, right? Holy Scripture has become the vehicle by which they have buffered themselves off 
from the self-revelation of God and Jesus Christ. It's become a kind of self-protection racket. Right? There are people, right, when they read scripture, all they see or hear is what confirms their existing beliefs. It just constantly protects them and shields them off from any kind of criticism. That's what's happened here. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, Jesus says. It turns out that the law itself is unable to give you life. Paul says this in Galatians. It's life-giving only because it points through the words to Christ, the life-giving word. Moses wrote about Jesus. And the scriptures testify of him. And so Jesus, again, very pointedly, verse 47 says that they don't believe in Moses and thus they can't believe in him. I mean, even trying to understand this phenomenon as I have today, this is a massive and tragic misunderstanding. Uh, They thought that the text itself somehow, the very words, the very act of studying it, was life. But somehow missed what the words pointed to, namely the Messiah, the Christ. Now, I don't think we should just scratch our heads at this. We should understand that this, what they're involved in here, engaging the text of Scripture, it's not a simple exercise. Christians today, for the most part, cannot find Christ in the Old Testament. And we have 2,000 years of reflection in the gift of the Holy Spirit to do it. So we ought not to be super hard on these people. It turns out it's possible with them and with us to have our lives crammed with Bible verses and sermons and still have deeply distorted views of God and Jesus Christ. Right? Most Christians today are not Trinitarian in any serious way. It's very easy for me to imagine at Jesus' second coming, him having a conversation with us, and especially with people like me who are leaders, that essentially mirrors the conversation he had with the religious leaders at his first coming. That's not hard for me to depict. We get stuff badly wrong. I mean, seriously wrong about who Jesus is and who God is, even after Christ has come. Even after we have the answer key. It's very hard not to kind of get lost in the minutiae of Scripture. Not to see the big picture, the painting. Not to see that the Bible's projecting something. And to see what it's projecting in the right proportion and the right integrity and the right, with the right splendor. And yet your spiritual health if not your salvation, depends on this. So I want to close with three things that I'd like us to take away from this text. I'm going to call one testimony, the second one location, and the third one reading. Testimony, location, and reading. Here's something we shouldn't miss in this text. God does not want you to believe in blind faith. He does not want you to take a leap in the dark. Soren Kierkegaard, for all of his brilliance and helpfulness, was wrong, the 19th century Danish philosopher, when he spoke of faith as a sort of existential leap into the dark. It is not. 
This text says that Jesus believes God, his Father, has provided abundant and public testimony, which is authentic and sufficient and reliable for faith. In fact, it is irrational to reject this testimony. Jesus does not think, yes, I know, it's really tough to believe in me. It's kind of ambiguous. What about other world religions? You ever hear Jesus talk like that? Jesus says this, look, my Father has provided abundant testimony. Believe the testimony. It's irrational to reject it. Second thing is location. We have John the Baptist's testimony. We have the testimony of the works that the Father has given the Son to do. We have that, but we have it only in one location. One place. We have it in Holy Scripture, which themselves testify to Jesus. So Scripture then is the place, the location that God testifies. And it's powerful testimony. It is mighty unto salvation. It's a wonderful story I read recently about um, one of the world's greatest classic scholars, a guy named Emile Ryu. He translated Homer's Iliad and Odyssey into this Penguin classic series that Penguin publishes. This was a couple decades ago. And Ryu at the time was 60-something years old, and he was a lifelong agnostic. And when he finished translating the Iliad and the Odyssey, the publisher asked him if he would translate the Gospels. And his son, I don't know if his son's a believer or not, but his son famously quipped, it will be interesting to see what father makes of the Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the Gospels make of Father. And within a year, Ryu Sr. was converted and joined the church. Because God gives authentic testimony about himself in Holy Scripture. Finally, I want to talk about reading. And this may be perhaps the most important of the points. I want to give you an analogy that was suggested by Kent Hughes in his commentary on John to try and describe what's going on with the Pharisees here. If if you're standing on the top floor of, say, very high, like the Empire State Building in New York City, and you're looking at this panoramic vista of the city, and you're just drinking it in, and then imagine someone comes up to you, and all they see, and all they want to talk about is the window you're looking through. What a great window. Is that a Pella window? I wonder how much that window cost. Look, there's a smudge. There's a smudge on the window. You know, this window, that window frame could be caulked better. Right? They refuse to see the vista. They want to talk about some crystal formation in the glass. Right? It's like looking at a painting and caring only about the chemical composition of the paint or the material of the canvas. You know, it's possible to do something just like that. A Bible verse here and another one over here and another one over there, like marbles banging around in the back of our head without seeing the canvas and the painting that holds them all together in Christ. It's very easy to do. In fact, the Pharisees had done it. They had done it. They had missed the big picture. Right? Proportion. Proportion is the big big issue. 
And so we need to cultivate a certain way of reading in which we're seeking Christ, in which we're asking, how does this text point me to Jesus? In other words, how does it splash paint on the canvas that God is painting? And there are lots of resources out there to help you with this. We had a Sunday school class here last year where I used a book called According to Plan by Graham's Goldworthy, which is a very good book, trying to get Christians to see the Bible as a whole and to see Christ in the whole of the Bible. That's the key. Because the Jewish leaders didn't do it. Right? They saw Scripture as a sort of independent deposit of religious wisdom for their own kind of private devotional life. Much the same way American Christians view the Bible. A sort of independent deposit, a devotional collection of stuff. But this text is saying, look, you have to read through the Bible to the canvas. You have to get a picture of the vista. You don't want to get stuck on the window. So our faith never ends with, it never terminates on the text. It terminates on who the text is pointing to. Namely, Jesus Christ. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. Christ is in the Old Testament testimony. Christ is the end or goal of the Old Testament testimony. Go and read likewise. Amen.